Welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. You can always find us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter or find me at GabeBC on those same sites uh, or the GabeBC on TikTok. But I haven't posted anything on TikTok, so don't even bother going there. Uh, I've been getting invited to a bunch of digital uh, shows lately. I got invited to one that was on a spaceship. I don't even know what that means, a digital spaceship. So that's exciting, I think. Uh, You never know what's going to happen when you're stuck inside for a global pandemic. What kind of shows you'll be invited to. Uh, this week, we have a really exciting episode. A friend of mine, someone who I've uh, encountered many times in the past couple of years, actually, David Goodman is our guest. He was the executive vice president of digital development and marketing at Sotheby's, where we actually did a show together uh, featuring some of the artists that have been on this podcast, actually, in the past. Um, David gave me this opportunity to do a, a show, and I brought this gallery that I ran called Bunker uh, to Sotheby's and we opened it up for a summer in Sotheby's. So artists like Ashley Zielinski and Carla Gannis, uh, some of the people that have been on this podcast before got to show their work there and it was a really exciting time. So I asked David if he would be on the podcast to discuss his work at Sotheby's, but also to discuss his life. Uh, David has run a number of really successful marketing campaigns for TV shows. He was involved in radio Um he also brought a very famous television show to the U.S., which we talk about during this episode. And so we talk about how art can impact people's lives and how media plays into that as well. You know, David is an art collector. His brother is an artist and he's always loved art. And so, you know, through his work, he's been able to actually shift people's opinions about art and culture and politics. So uh, without further ado, let's take it away and welcome David Goodman to the podcast. Thanks, Gabe. Uh, so we originally met nice at, to talk. I know we met at Sotheby's and then, uh, what was that like two years ago? Probably. Um, well, we originally, we originally met, I went to see your exhibition at LACMA oh, that's and right. I, and I think you were there. I was, um, and I was so blown away by your exhibition. Um, it was about obituaries and when people pass away and in their entire um, social history surfaces um, after they pass away, and I, I was so um, disturbed <laughs> by that <laughs> exhibition. I, I think disturbed in a good way really moved me, and I thought it was quite powerful. Um, that I tracked you down, and uh, I had decided that you know I really wanted to meet you and do something together. Well, I'm sorry that I disturbed you at the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, you know, great art does that. <laughs> well, I, I want to get into what you were doing at Sotheby's because you were the vice president of digital development. But I, I also want to talk about your life, basically what led you to that point, um, because I think you've been working through a bunch of different mediums and formats, and it's really relevant to this podcast specifically. So maybe you can tell us kind of how you got interested in art in the first place. Uh, yeah, so um, my job at Sotheby's um, was I was uh, I was the global CMO, and then I was in charge of digital content and e-commerce, as well as all the kind of events and exhibitions that we were doing around the world. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, it was kind of like an interesting and somewhat circuitous journey in terms of getting there. And I started a long time ago um, in the art world. I graduated with a history degree from Indiana University and I uh, specialized in art history and I was particularly interested in that period of Paris in the 20s. And then um, during that time of the college, however, I I was very active in a variety of social causes and, you know, had intended to be a political activist after I had finished college and went to work and ended up running, um, being one of the people that ran a national campaign. And I'm dating myself around a movie called The Day After, which was a movie on ABC (laughs) which um, surfaced the possibility of nuclear war and about something that would had happened in um, or potentially was going to happen in Lawrence, Kansas. And there was a, a group of us who got together. And at the time, the nuclear freeze movement um, was quite active. People were particularly concerned about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And so we used this kind of very cutting edge technology at the time called a telephone um, <laughs> to um, have people call an 800 number that if they were concerned about nuclear war, that we would send you a kit of information and um, um, and it allowed you a variety of ways to become engaged and involved. And you know, from there, that led to a really interesting job 
in my very early 20s at a museum in Chicago called the Peace Museum, which is no longer in existence. But it was a really wonderful place because it celebrated social change through the arts. And so we did a number of exhibitions. One was Give Peace a Chance, which was how music um, influenced social change from Lead Belly to at that point U2. And we did an exhibition called The Unforgettable Fire, which ultimately became the cover art of a U2 record, Hmm. uh, which was drawings by survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and an exhibition on Martin Luther King. And um, it was really interesting um, and and a wonderful experience. But I really decided that if I wanted to be involved in social change, I really wanted to kind of get smack dab into the media business. And so... I moved to New York. Wait, can we go? Um, can we go back actually, really quick? I, I just want yeah, to sure. start off with this movie that you mentioned, <laughs> the day yeah, after sure. movie. So, how did you get involved in creating that marketing campaign or working with that marketing team? It was um, it was a very um, funny story. I was looking for a job. I was living in Washington D.C. I was um, kind of interning for Gary Hart and working as a bartender, as a waiter, to go ahead and support myself. Um, I met somebody in a bar who gave me a recommendation that some people were starting this campaign and I moved to New York and um, we ended up running this national campaign because um, the movie turned out to be, I think, the highest rated movie in the history of made for television movies when there used to be made for television movies. And we had something like 100 million viewers. And it was you know, also really interesting because at the time, nobody would buy the advertising um, around the movie because everybody was so concerned because of the controversy. And, you know, I actually think Orville Redenbacher bought the ads in the movie and it turned out to be probably the greatest buy in the history of television <laughs> why in did, terms of efficiency. Why did Orville um, Redenbacher have an interest in this particular I, campaign? I, 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 I have no idea, but I think that, you know, whoever the media buyer was, was probably smart enough to recognize that, you know, there was going to be a pretty massive audience. And so they wanted to get behind this. And uh, so you were interested um, and, in, in activism, but you're working at a bar and then you got connected to these people that had made this film already. And you decided that you were going to help them out with this idea, this, this phone number. Well, the people, the people who did the um, political campaign was a separate organization, and uh, and so and it was just set up um, specifically around this movie. And it, you know, the thing that um, was really um, interesting to me, and the thing that I learned from it was really the impact of media mm-hmm. and how it could really go ahead and um, have. Um, an absolutely incredible, incredible impact in terms of um, giving people insight and knowledge around a particular issue and really move the needle. And I think that movie actually had a lot to do with people's awareness um, around the issues that were going on around the nuclear arms race, around MAD. Um, yeah, and, I, I read um, that it actually like influenced Reagan's opinions on the subject, that specific film. Yeah, it was a really powerful film. And, um, you know, and it was interesting to me, you know, which was why I took the next job at the Peace Museum, was it was always interesting to me how art um, and content, you know, has the ability to really make a tremendous impact in people's lives and in popular opinion. And that, that movie did that. And, you know, it is also kind of the interesting, something interesting um, in my career is that, um, it was the first time I used, and even though I kid about the telephone, the, an 800 number at the time was pretty much cutting edge technology in terms of generating massive response. And it was really the first time, which you know I've mirrored throughout my career, of leveraging technology and media to go ahead and you know generate some kind of response. And that that's you know pretty much been a consistent theme you know throughout my life. And so with this 1 800 number, people would call and, and leave their responses to the film or their their ideas about nuclear war um they would respond they would call this number because they were concerned about the threat of nuclear war and they wanted to get involved mm. and then we would go ahead and send them a kit of information that um, gave them a variety of pieces of content and local organizations that they could connect with in wow. the various cities that they lived in it was you know it was a great campaign and at 22 i found myself running a national campaign and you know, being quoted in a variety of places and 
um, it was as shocking to my parents as it was to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone who was also a former bartender uh, that then got involved in a bunch of art and media campaigns, I understand. Um, yeah, it all starts in a restaurant. So the, from there, you go on to the Peace Museum. And yeah. what, what was your role at the Peace Museum? I was head of fundraising. But, you know, just to backtrack, it, you know, I had a long history in the arts. My brother is a terrific sculptor and a successful sculptor. So I grew up in a family um, that, you know, was very passionate about the arts. And I, I learned a tremendous amount about um, the art world and, you know, the um, creative process, you know, from being around my brother for so many years who, you know, has sculptures in various locations around the country and various parts of the world, I believe. And so I ended up um, being a fundraiser at this museum. And, you know, being a fundraiser was a great job because um, it really taught you how to be fearless. It's really hard for people oftentimes to ask for money. And um, I um, kind of took to it. I really enjoyed it. It was a small, small museum um, in what is now the Gallery District of Chicago. But at the time, you know, it was just, um, you know, a lot of loft buildings and Cabrini Green was around the corner and, you know, a couple Italian beef stands. And that was pretty much it in the neighborhood. And that was the early 80s. And subsequently, that whole area, River North, has gone on to become a pretty dynamic art center for the city of Chicago. Yeah, definitely. How, how did you go about asking for money at that time? Um, I, you just ask. Um, you know, <laughs> I... Um, I, you know, it was interesting when I got there, like so many arts organizations, there was constantly a shortage of money. And so, I, you know, I, I got there and they were like, good news, you have the job, bad news, we don't really have enough money to go ahead and make payroll in about right. a month. And so, you know, I immediately just got on the phone and started dialing and, um, and started talking to um, people who had the ability to contribute sizable sums of money. Um, and sometimes, you know, 10 or $25. And um, it made a difference. And we were successful in terms of fundraising. I started grant writing, you know, which was a longer process. But I, I learned a lot. Um, and I was also doing, you know, various marketing campaigns uh, around the museum. And it was super interesting. And it really taught me a tremendous amount about um, it's okay to ask people for money. Uh, it's okay when people say no. It's not personal. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of go on to the next. And um, it was a really good skill. And, you know, I really encourage everyone to do it because it really taught me later in life as, you know, an executive producer of various types of content. So much of your job is to go ahead and raise the money around a particular production. And so it, it really was uh, pretty seminal in terms of um, my knowledge that I generate that I gained. Um, at a pretty early age. And how did the tie-ins with music work at the Peace Museum? Because you mentioned that several of the pieces were then featured as, as album artworks. Yeah, you know, it was, um, it, there was always an association. The museum um, did this exhibition called Give Peace a Chance. And we had the guitar that uh, John Lennon wrote, Imagine. Um, and, um, you know, Jackson Brown was a um, big supporter of the museum. You too, um, were awesome. It was early in their career. They were big supporters of the museum. They did a benefit concert for us mm -hmm. in, you know, 1983, I think, at the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago. And I remember raising and they gave a donation of $10,000. And, you know, at the time, I thought $10,000 was more money than I could ever imagine in my life. Sure. And they were um, incredible in terms of, you know, really supporting um, what was a, you know, relatively small museum. But, you know, it was a museum that was doing something that no one was really doing in the world, which was celebrating um, artists who contributed to positive social change. And, yet, you know, I think that um, it, it's an interesting one because, you know, I remember having a, conversations about, a conversation years ago around memorials. And, you know, I think it's particularly timely, you know, in the world that we're living in today, like why there weren't more memorials to people who were um, – um, people who really celebrated peace mm. and positive social change, because so many of the memorials, not just in the United States, but around the world are um, geared towards people who were conquerors right. um, or, or so, you know, ostensibly war heroes, um, you know, which is an interesting term. And I, you know, I, I was, I was pretty lucky to be around an interesting group of people. And at the time, 
I, I learned a lot because I was interested in community activism as part of it. The guy who was the founder of the museum, um, I, I, he subsequently passed away, I believe, um, Mark Rugovin, who was a muralist. And Mark um, was really a wonderful muralist from the south side of Chicago. And he was really committed um, and around this idea that art has the ability to really um, um, you know, so, uh, generate change. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I learned a lot from a variety of people it was an interesting place. Funny enough, though, the reason I actually moved to New York is, um, my girlfriend, who's my wife now, um, was in the process of moving to New York and she was, she had just gotten accepted to the master's program at ITP at NYU. And another was, connection that we have here. <laughs> yeah, another connection yeah. that we have. And, you know, ITP at the time, there was ITP and um, who was doing interactive telecommunications and MIT. And those were really the only two master's programs in the country. And I decided to move back to New York. I worked on the day after New York um, and then moved to Chicago for the Peace Museum. But I decided to move back to New York. And one of the reasons was um, there was a young guy doing community activism in Chicago at the same time and organizing. And, uh, you know, he was maybe a couple years older than me, a year or two older than me. And I said to my girlfriend, who's now my wife, I said, God, I'm never going to be as together as that guy as an organizer. And of course, that guy is Rahm Emanuel. Uh. <laughs> and, um, and so I was like, you know, I think I need to get into the TV business and, you know, kind of move on from the arts business. <laughs> so you stopped just because uh, Rahm was your competition at the time? <laughs> yeah, I think Rahm was my competition at the time. And it was... Uh, um, and, uh, and also I was really interested in media. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was really interested in media because of my experience with the day after, um, I really liked the media business. I wanted to learn more about the business side of, um, of, of, of the media uh, biz. And so I moved to New York and I was fortunate. I got a job in television syndication for a startup company at the time. And I started out selling television shows, I really kind of felt that, you know, I had an understanding of the creative process, but I really wanted to have a deeper understanding of the business side of the entertainment industry. And I learned a lot about um, what people watch, why they watch things, you know, how television shows get made, how they're funded. Um, you know, it was, um, it, it was an interesting job um, that, um, you know, I did for a number of years and then kind of morphed that into my own company, which I then um, um, combined with a startup, uh, a, not a startup, a small company at the time in LA um, called Saban Entertainment. And um, I merged my company into Saban. Haim didn't have a domestic organization. It was primarily an international company. And lo and behold, I moved out to LA. We merged the company. And a year later, um, we got a show on the air called Power Rangers. And so wait, um, how did Power you, Rangers. how did how did that happen? Did you find Power oh, Rangers and did you create it with oh, somebody? No, uh, no um, I didn't create it. There was uh, uh, Chaim Saban, who um, was um, the founder of Saban Entertainment. He was in the kids television business and he found this show in um, Japan when he was at the toy licensing mm -hmm. show. I, I think it was called. I, I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce ten in Japanese, Jew or something like that. Ranger, I, I can't, I, I can't remember what ten stands for, but I remember it was something like it, it was called something other than Power Rangers. And he found that he cut a little four minute demo, and I remember him showing it to me at the time. And he goes, "So what do you think?" And I said. It's either the worst show in the history of television or the greatest show of all time. And we were like, let's go try to sell it. And literally everyone turned us down. Um, huh. And then finally we got the show on Fox and, you know, the rest is history. And sometimes it only takes one. <laughs> Was it, do you think some of your training at the Peace Museum and asking for money and kind of getting rejected <laughs> led to this, uh, right. being able to I, shop I, this around? <laughs> Yeah, I had one person say, this is the dumbest show in the history of television. I can't believe you're wasting my time and I want you to leave my office right away. So that we, person will remain nameless. <laughs> but um, you know, why, did you, so, why did you believe in it at the time? I'm so curious about this because I, you know, I talk to people all the time. They get turned down by five or six people and then that's it. They kind of rethink their, their position. 
what was it about this I, show or just who you are that allows I, you to do this sort of thing? I believed in Chaim. Um, I thought Chaim was an uh, extraordinarily talented individual, great exec. Um, I believed he had a passion and an insight and uh, um, was relentless. And um, I really um, believed that he he was an extraordinarily successful person and also was my job to sell the show mm-hmm. and to and to work on it and to you know be part of the team that brought that to life and um you know and so and i had a you know a wife and a young son and you know if i didn't do my job i didn't get paid so uh, you know um but i actually i liked the show i always thought it was kind of great and you know it was one of those shows that interestingly you know kind of you know monday morning quarterback you know it, it was interesting because um you know the women young women on the show were equally as powerful as young men and you know really up until that time you know a lot of um young girls um didn't you know have characters that were uh, physically as powerful as oftentimes male superheroes were and so you know and it was it was an interesting show in retrospect and which was one of the reasons it was so successful because it appealed both to young boys and young girls and that was somewhat unusual at the time and this was when the, the 90s early 90s I think it got on the air in 93 and I think it's, you know, I think it's still on the air. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was a monster. Um, it was super successful and uh, honestly it surprised us all. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, um, you you know, we thought it was going to be a successful show because we were looking at the research before the show went on the air, but uh, you know, I don't think anybody can tell you that with a straight face that, you know, 20 some years later, or, you know, thir- you know, 28 years later would still be one of the most successful shows in television. Yeah, you know, for kids. it seems like with all these examples that we talked about so far that you're in a way changing people's behavior, uh, or influencing people's behavior through media, even with Power Rangers, yeah. the fact that they would, a bunch mm-hmm. of people would pass on it, and that it was kind of featuring these powerful female characters at the time when superhero shows were primarily male. And I'm sure that was yeah. part of the reason that people passed on it, too, you know? Um, yeah, but I'm curious was, about your view of media and, and its ability to kind of change people's preconceived notions or behavior for good. Well, I, 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 I'm a huge believer in um, in the media. Um, you know, I believe that the media is the force of good. Um, it could be remarkable um, when it's honest and um, um, and you you have these extraordinary people who tell amazing stories and you're able to bring that to life. And, you know, it, 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 it changed the media changes the world. Art changes the world. Um, and you know, when I use media, I use it as a big M, you know, whether it's art or music, um, or film or television or, um, or radio. I, I mean, these are, um, they're, they're extra or newspapers. They're, they're extraordinary in terms of what they're able to do and they're powerful forces. Um, you know, hopefully they're forces for good. I think that, you know, we live in clearly, um, challenging times where, um, the media business is, you know, um, you know, gotten a bad knock, um, in so many ways, you know, I, I spent 13 years at CBS. I was fortunate around to be around the news organization at CBS and, you know, and also have, was fortunate to be able to work with the archives of the CBS news organization. And, you know, the people, the men and women that, that, um, tell those stories and report on those events. I, I mean, those are the most extraordinary people in the world. And, uh, and what, what is happening today is just, you know, sometimes I can't believe it like the rest of us, but, um, I think the media is media is just a powerful, um, it's just powerful and wonderful and it can, you know, inspire and move people's opinions and just do extraordinary things. And so this is around the period when the internet is just taking off, I'm assuming, right? When Power Rangers is going yeah. on and, and it, yeah. did that change your view in terms of the career trajectory you wanted to have or how you perceive the media at the time? Well, I, I definitely became interested in this intersection of new technology and content. You know, that was always something that um, I, I, I was interested in, you know, we, at the time, 
you know, we did something with Power Rangers where I remember setting up the first CD-ROM deal for us. Hmm. And, you know, it immediately, like, I, I, you can only imagine how many CD-ROMs that we sold at the time. And, you know, CD-ROMs is like, I'm not sure, like, you know, probably half your audience even remembers what a CD-ROM right. was. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, and screensavers and, you know, all that kind of crazy stuff. And, um, in, and then I was always interested in... Um, I, I was interested in a variety of lanes within the media and entertainment business, not just the creative side, but I was always interested in distribution and new channels of distribution. So, um, you know, after I left Saban, I was there for a number of years and then went over to Warner Music and Warner Brothers, Warner Bros, and worked in a couple different areas um, for Warner. And um, I ended up creating... Um, a series called Hard Rock Live, which is a uh, music series. And mm. we did the first um, kind of television and internet um, music series simultaneously. We had a deal with VH1 and MSN, um, which at the time, and I think 1997, MSN was trying to go ahead and, you know, make a big move into the content business. And, you know, there's a lot of roadkill clearly along the way of companies that, you know, have tried to do a number of different things in those lanes. But it was really interesting around what streaming a music series was. We actually weren't even streaming the live video. We were kind of streaming pictures alongside of the performance <laughs> on VH1. And, you know, everything had to be um, negotiated because there was no roadmap in terms of rights and clearances. And, you know, so I find myself, I found myself really interested in, you know, kind of a variety of different challenges and problems that, um, you had to, um, deal with, you know, as you thought about new technology and distribution and, um, and how to, um, um, and how to go about those um, questions. And so I like things that were um, where there wasn't necessarily a roadmap mm -hmm. and you had the ability to kind of create the, the roadmap. And that yeah. was cool. And you've been obviously working with music for a while. Is, are you musical yourself? Do you play instruments? No, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I was the only student that my piano teacher ever said that you shouldn't really play piano to my mother. Um, so that's uh, why you're tangentially around musicians all the time. I, I, I'm tangentially around. It's like, you know, those who can't do, so to speak. Um, I, I do play a mean harmonica though. All right. Um, or, or so I like to think I play a mean harmonica, but you know, I'm not sure anyone else would necessarily agree. I might ask if you have one later for the end of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so you were doing these deals with MSN at the time for music. Uh, and yeah. like working with a lot of musicians and this is like right around the time the internet came out and you also were working yeah. in radio right at the time did i get that right with radio so um i um um i was um i i was i left um warner and um i took a job at cbs radio and um i took a job at cbs radio and um I ended up um, overseeing um, marketing, um, new media, and then at CBS Radio, um, um, I, we took, I took a job at CBS Radio, and um, hold on one second, I just lost my train of thought. Um, so I took a job at CBS Radio, I was overseeing uh, marketing, uh, new media, uh, kind of variety of new businesses at CBS Radio. And so it was, you know, a super interesting job. I was fortunate to work with a guy named John Sykes. John had previously run VH1. And, um, and so I went over there and we were able to do a number of things. And I became really involved and a big believer in uh, streaming, streaming audio mm. and then rolled up AOL radio and Yahoo Launchcast radio. And which we then built what was the largest um, streaming, um, audio streaming business in the world. And we were streaming more media than anyone else other than YouTube. And this was about 2006, 2007. We had rolled everything up. And we had also started to um, um, get involved in the podcast uh, business. I oh, wow. created a radio station called KYOU, which was the world's first all podcast radio station, which... Um, 
it, it was interesting because we took a radio station in San Francisco, which was a little AM radio station, which really um, only the kind of dolphins could hear out in san francisco and we said and i said you know let's go ahead and at the time there was you know a couple people doing some podcasts there was this company called odeo um which i believe then became twitter um and so and um so we started to experiment we built a podcast directory and um it was super cool and you know we got involved in that and you know and the streaming audio business um i I was a passionate believer I, i think one of the things that I've always done in my jobs was I, I've tended to kind of be the change agent at the companies where I was at in my role. So, you know, I was the person that tended to push new behaviors, new distribution channels. And, you know, that's sometimes good, good or bad because, you know, in legacy businesses, you know, there tends to often be a resistance to change, sure. um, to state the obvious. Um, but, you know, I was the one kind of pushing um, to put our stations online and there was kind of massive resistance at the time you know people didn't want to go ahead and put their radio stations online they felt it would hurt their terrestrial business um they didn't see it as an opportunity they saw it as a threat um there's clearly so many different things you could do in streaming audio that you couldn't just do with you know traditional radio and so but we built a a you know, really awesome platform. We were streaming massive amounts of of audio and music and spoken words, and um, it it was just great. And so, um, it was a it was a really um, awesome experience, and um, um, I loved it. And I was at CBS for a number of years, and then kind of pivoted into a couple different roles at CBS where I ended up running all the music businesses around the world. CBS had bought a company called Last FM, which was one of the early um, leaders in the, um, in, the, um, in the streaming music business. They created something called Scrobbling, which tracked your musical history. Oh, yeah. I remember Scrobbling. <laughs> yeah, Scrobbling was super cool. When you're coming and, into you know, these companies and advocating for these massive changes, is it ever, do you ever feel like you're too early on these changes? Like you, you're pushing for technology that maybe is not ready to be embraced by everybody? Yes. <laughs> I mean, is that a problem? I mean, do you think like, oh, I'm not, this is the wrong decision? Or has there been a, a, a moment where it didn't work out exactly as you, as you thought it would? Um, oh, yeah. It, it's like every day it doesn't work out exactly as you thought it mm-hmm. would. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, that could be good or that could be bad. And yeah, you know, you know, people oftentimes, um, you know, people don't wake up in the morning, you know, kind of thinking, you know, I want to change today. You know, changing <laughs> your behavior is really hard. Um, you know, it, um, you know, especially if you've been doing something for a long time and, you know, it's not, it, it's, a, it's also kind of a state of mind. It's not a young thing or an old thing. Um, but, you know, people, you know, change is hard. And, you know, also when you have legacy businesses that, you know, are generating significant amounts of revenue, you know, for something new that potentially, you know, might have an impact over a period of time, you know, you're, you're definitely, it's, it's a quandary as to how you embrace that and um, how you innovate. And also oftentimes it means kind of disintermediating the things that have made you really successful. And, you, you know, there's a reason, you know, the innovator's dilemma is a real thing. And so, um, it's, it's challenging. Um, it's challenging and it's hard. Um, it's hard to get people to embrace change. You know, oftentimes there's tipping points that happen where, you know, there's, there's moments where all of a sudden it's, um, there's a quote by Hemingway that I don't remember something about, you know, it's gradual and then it's not. Um, (laughs) um, and, and then, um, and then something happens, um, that, um, truly, you know, pushes things over the top. I, I think, you know, you know, you see that in the art world now. The art world, you know, has been historically resistant to technology mm-hmm. um, and uh, technological innovation. You know, you see it in online buying in in the art world that you know people have you know tended to be resistant to it for a number of years. And you know, as the person who is the architect of the e-commerce strategy and the, uh, the rollout of the platform over at Sotheby's up until the time I left, um, you know, it was, it was hard. And, you know, and although 
it, we made a tremendous amount of progress and we're extraordinarily successful in rolling out that platform and you know pivoting um, the way in which we sold and moving more and more towards online registration, bidding and buying. Um, the, the fact of the matter is I, I think that you know as, as an outsider now, you know you see that change as a result of the pandemic. People were forced to go ahead not being able to go into um, a gallery and auction house. Um, they had to do, you know, the majority of their buying online and or over the telephone. And so, you, you know, now the behavior, which a couple of years ago was um, uh, was new and, you know, people were questioning whether to embrace it and whether people would go ahead and, you know, buyers, collectors would truly get behind it. You know, now um, it's it, it's become normalized. You know, so, yeah. you know, it, it's it, it's a journey with these things. Um, you know, podcasting is the same kind of thing. And, you know, for we started, I, I think the podcasting world really kind of started in 2005, for the most part, some early, early people in the space. It really wasn't until, you know, 2018, 2017, 2018 or so that um, it really um, started to go ahead and, you know, become kind of a core way in which people um, engage with media. How do you decide when it's time to make a change yourself? Because obviously you've moved between a bunch of different uh, you know, <laughs> formats in your life from radio to film to the art world. Like when do you think that, okay, it's time for me to move on from this company? Is it when you get the next offer or is there something in you that's like every certain amount of years I'm leaving? Um, you know, I like change. Um, I like, um, I, you know, I tend to be, there's certain people that um, like to go ahead and build new things, um, and, you know, um, and are really excited by, you know, kind of taking, you know, a disparate number of assets and seeing how they could all work together and kind of building something new. Um, and, you know, there's other people that, you know, really love kind of being an operator of, you know, of something that is, uh, um, already established, you know, so I, you know, I tend to like to build things. I tend to like that, like to get them to a certain point where it's really successful. And then, you know, I tend to kind of like to move on to the next challenge. And, you know, I think that the other thing is that, you know, most challenges tend not to be unique that companies experience. They just tend to be unique to the person that experiences them for the first time. And so, you know, there's a consistency in terms of, kind of a set of challenges that most companies and businesses go through, you know, how to acquire customer customers, how to generate awareness, interest, how to go ahead and, you know, grow your brand, um, you know, how to leverage technology to go ahead and evolve your business, um, you know, how to ensure that you don't get disintermediated along the way, um, and how do you embrace innovation? Th those are kind of consistent sets of problems that um, companies go through. So, you know, I tend to um, like to come in and be that person as, you know, that kind of change agent, mm -hmm. you know, that that comes with its own certain set of um, unique, it comes with its own certain set of challenges, you know, oftentimes, um, you're not the most beloved person coming in, <laughs> um, you know, and also, you know, you don't have oftentimes that deep um lane of knowledge about a particular industry because you haven't spent 30 years in that industry and is that challenging for you i mean do you ever feel it's not challenging of, for me you don't um, feel like a sense of imposter syndrome ever when you're coming into a company if you don't feel like you know everything about that company when you come in I, it's not challenging for me um you know i don't actually mind it so much yeah. um, because i have a different set of knowledge um and a different skills i think that oftentimes you know, it could be threatening to other people, mm -hmm. um, you know, because, you know, you're not from that world. And, you know, oftentimes people, you know, it, it, every place I've ever been, you know, it's always kind of started, well, you don't necessarily understand because you haven't, you know, because our business is unique, you know, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, we all like to think of ourselves as unique, uh, you know, oftentimes we're a lot less unique than we actually mm -hmm. think we are. So I want to talk about the art world a little bit um, since we kind of arrived here at Sotheby's in the fast forwarded version of your life. <laughs> um, what what needs to change, do you think, in the art world right now? Maybe not even not even just in terms of the way art is bought and sold, but what would you change about the art world if you could change anything? Um, yeah, you know, 
Um, what would I change about the art world? Well, you know, the art world, it, it's like there's so many worlds within the art world. You, you know, so, you know, I'm not quite um, – it, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I think that um, um, it's an interesting question. What would I change within the art world? You know, I, I think that the thing about the art world that I love is that um, is the stories mm-hmm. um, from the art world. You know, it's like great paintings, great art, you know, tends to have an extraordinary narrative, you know, behind it. And, you know, I, I really love the storytelling aspect of art, um, you know, versus, you know, sometimes the more intellectual academic um, perspective mm-hmm. uh, around, you know, particular pieces of art. You know, I think that, you know, storytelling is a way to make things much more accessible and engaging. You know, I'm a storyteller by nature. I, I respond to that, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, kind of certain things about why something is important or extraordinary. And, you know, I, I would love to really see, you know, more people embrace that, you know, to go ahead and, you know, make it, um, a, you know, even to create even greater accessibility and understanding about why something is important um, and also why something um, is either timeless or sometimes of its time. You know, I think that those are really hard, hard questions. And, you know, what makes somebody, um, what, what makes something great um, as opposed to, you know, what's interesting at a particular moment in time. Yeah, you know, music goes through that, literature goes through that, film goes through that. You know, we, we all kind of grapple with, is this thing going to be really extraordinary and powerful 50 years from now? Right. You know, or is it just something that, you know, you know, kind of, you know, has an impact at this moment and, you know, then, you know, we go live to see another day. Yeah, it's something I see with my students, actually, is that there's been a shift towards more conceptual art again rather than necessarily story-based art or even figurative art. Um, I don't know if that's because of the internet or what, but they all seem to be really interested in art that sometimes I look at it and I'm like, I have no idea what this is about. I had no idea unless you told me. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't know how long that kind of work lasts. I mean, maybe it will change in, in the way that we document it. Um, yeah. What, what advice would you give to young artists in terms of how to market themselves and their work? Well, you know, I think the, the thing is like, you know, the most important thing is your work. Um, you know, and yeah, you know, I, I was fortunate in that I grew up, um, uh, with someone who is an extraordinary artist and yet, you know, my, my, my brother and I are very different. I, I would look at him and, you know, he would be able to go ahead and spend hours working on his studio and kind of, you know, shift one piece of bronze, you know, one inch to the right or left and ponder that for a particular <laughs> time. And I, I would, you know, of course, sit there and say, you know, what could you possibly do be doing? And, you know, he would be saying, well, I'm working. And, mm-hmm. you know, it would, I couldn't understand it at all. Um, but it, it really responded to me because um, really what it showed me was, um, was, how hard you really have to work at being a great artist. You know, there really aren't any shortcuts for success. Um, and that, um, um, and I, I think ultimately, um, that's the most important thing that said, you, you know, there is a theatrical aspect to the art world for mm-hmm. sure that, um, you know, has always been there. Um, you know, it's about going ahead and connecting to the right galleries, the right collectors, the right museums, you know, and in this particular world that we live in now, you know, we, you know, have a greater control control of our destiny than we ever had before, to a certain extent, in that you have the ability to really be a marketer and a promoter, um, and to reach a pretty large audience that historically, you went through third parties to go ahead and reach, which, you know, is no different in the gallery world than it is in the music world than it is in, you know, the film world where, you know, people who are historical gatekeepers, you know, that, that clearly has changed in the world that we're living in. You know, that said, you know, I I think it's really hard to expect somebody to be, you know, a great artist and a great promoter. You know, those are, you know, it's two different jobs. It's two different jobs. And, you know, and, um, it's, it's really, it's really hard. And so, um, I, you know, it's, um, it, it's, 
I, I think that the, the thing about it is, you know, it's really, you know, about the work, but you know, that said, you have to aggressively go out and promote yourself, um, and do the work and do the promotional work that, you know, uh, historically a lot of third parties did for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't just rely on a third party to go ahead and, uh, ensure that you're successful. I, I think the other thing too is that in the world that we're living in, um, you need to have a constant dialogue um, with your community. And I, I think that that's the great thing about social media and the great thing about the web is that it gives you the ability to have this kind of a constant drumbeat about what it is that you're doing so that you don't go radio silent, so to speak. And I think that that's an important um, it, it, it's an important thing to remember. So, you know, that could be, you know, just, you know, posting what you're working on, your comments, you know, your thoughts, you know, what, what you're seeing that you find interesting in other work. And, um, you know, and I find that, um, that's an important thing to do. I, I also think that, you know, it, it's also important to really have an understanding and knowledge about, um, the arts, you know, mm-hmm. not just your, about your particular lane, but, you know, about um, music, literature, film, um, other media that's happening. So, you know, that you kind of have an, um, an understanding and a deep understanding and appreciation of what is happening culturally. You know, I, I find that, you know, those reference points are always interesting to me. I'm, you know, clearly, you know, passionate about those things. That, that's been meaningful in my life and helpful in my life as both a operator and also as somebody who has created num- a number of shows, exhibitions, events over the years. And, you know, I, I find that, you know, being culturally curious, you know, is something that is meaningful in my life. Yeah. And, it, and to be able to respond to different cultural trends as an artist, too, I think is important or react to them. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it doesn't mean like, you know, it doesn't mean you pander to it. Right. Um, it, it just means that, um, there's You're an aware. awareness, yeah. it, there's an awareness and, you know, artists like, you know, the, the amazing thing about artists is, you know, they see things, great artists see things before the rest of the world, you know, sees and the rest of the world, you know, catches up to a great artist. You know, they, they, they see truths and, you know, recognize, you know, issues and, um, and, uh, um, challenges, you know, oftentimes, you know, they're on the edge of the network. A great artist is, you know, seeing something oftentimes just way before anybody sees it. And then all of a sudden, you know, and that's why it's so controversial. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the things that are the greatest things were oftentimes the most hated at the time they were created, you know, and, you know, over time, those are the things that tend to have the most value. Um, and, you know, those are the t- things that, you know, value being the most meaning and, you know, oftentimes the most, you know, financial value. Sure. And, and now in terms of what's going on today, what are you most excited about? Whether that's um, in media or in art or in film, any of these things that you've been interested in for years? Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm excited. Um, um, I, I'm most excited about the upcoming election. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you know, so much of the rest of the world. How do we convince um, people about that election to vote the right yeah. way? What's the yeah. you, you're good at convincing sure. people? How do you do it? <laughs> yeah, you know, get your ass out and vote. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just like you know, I, no excuse for not voting, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But um, it, you know, I, I I tend to be I, I I like this thing that's going on where. Um, there's recognition of a variety of different artists from different places around the world. You, you know, and, you know, I'm somewhat biased, you know, being a guy who grew up around Gary, Indiana, you know, I didn't grow up in the, what you would call the coolest cultural place in the world. Um, you, you know, and, you know, historically, you know, you had to be in different cities to be recognized and noticed and that if you were in outlier markets, um, you know, it was harder for you to go ahead and break through, and, you know, and I think that, you know, what's happening now is, you know, there's great artists that are being recognized from, you know, a variety of different places, whether it's, you know, the contemporary art movement in Africa or Cuba or, you know, or, you know, a place like Chicago or, um, it, you know, just, it, you know, it's, it's, it's global and there's a recognition that it's global and it's, you know, coming from just, you know, variety is 
of different people and personas and, you know, attitudes. And it's just kind of awesome. And, you know, I also like this intersection of art and technology. I think that that, you know, really hasn't even started to round first yet. Mm -hmm. You know, even though, you know, it's interesting, artists have always used technology, you know, to go ahead and create, you know, something extraordinary, like, you know, without the fabricate, you know, like, you know, where does Donald Judd start or right. stop, you know, without the fabrication process, right? You know, yeah, so Oldenburg it's not like, yeah, yeah I, I mean, you know, or Richard Serra, you know, how does he make those, you know, massive sculptures without great technology? So, you know, but I, I think the kinds of things that Gabe, you're, you've explored, you know, in terms of this intersection of new media and art, you know, is, um, is something that, you know, over the next number of years, um, people will begin to accept it. Um, to a greater degree and start embracing it. And, you know, really, um, and I, I think that there's an exciting opportunity in that world as well. No, I hope so. That's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hopefully it'll still be around. Um, before we go, and thank you so much for being on the podcast today, but I have a series of rapid fire questions for you that we do with every episode of State of the Art. So these are yeah. just questions about, you know, kind of silly stuff or random thoughts. So just the first thing that pops into your head. Uh, so who is the one band you'd love to see that you never got to see? A queen. Oh yeah, that's queen is still touring, but I, I assume it's different now, right? Yeah, I, I'm telling you, queen, 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 one point Right. Uh, where is your favorite place to go on vacation? Um, I I like East Hampton. Okay, is that where you are? You there now? Um, I'm in East Hampton now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, um, if you could eat dinner with an artist that is living or dead, who would it be? Bob Dylan. And what would you eat? Um, anything Bob wanted to eat. <laughs> what would that be? Do you have an assumption? <laughs> I don't know. It could be like with Bob. Who knows? Who cares? <laughs> I'm just eating with Bob Dylan. All right. I feel like that could happen. Um, <laughs> and then if you could collect one artwork that you don't already have in your collection, what would it be and why? Or one artist, um, I should say. I, you know, it's, it's it's funny. It's like, I, I give you two, like, it's either a Genileski or um, a Twombly. Hmm. You know, they're two completely different yeah. types of artists. Um, you know, I, I love them both for, for different reasons. You know, one is just completely meditative to me, and the other is just, you know, one of the great figurative artists. I, I like old masters, mm -hmm. um, and um, I like that kind of intersection of having, um, you know, a variety of different mediums that you know, live side by side. I think that's cool. I, you know, I, I think that's, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, we, we live with a lot of different media from a lot of different periods. And I like that. I like that idea of like having, you know, something from the 15th century next to something from the 20th century. Yeah. That sounds, that's, I like that concept as well in my own collecting. Um, thank you, David. Thank you, David Goodman for being on the podcast today. All right. Thanks, Gabe. Uh, yeah, this has been great. And uh, we'll, we'll link to some of the work that you've done that we talked about in this podcast in our description of this episode. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Take it easy. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to another episode of State of the Art. I'm Gabe BC. Uh, you can always follow me at Gabe BC. Uh, if you have any ideas or suggestions or comments you want to relay to us, you can send me an email at Gabe at thestateoftheart.org. Uh, we're happy to read some questions on the air or uh, communicate directly with you through social media at State of the Art on Twitter and Instagram. State of the Art is an at-art production originally created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, Weston Stevens is our audio engineer extraordinaire and Vanessa Wilson is our producer. And I hope that they're all doing well and uh, I've been communicating with them a little bit and they seem like they're safe and healthy. And I hope our audience is also uh, doing well and staying indoors and being safe. So we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks. <laughs>